Hello, welcome along. Very, very welcome to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. We're discussing all things NHS and health related with a political twist. I'm Steve Bryan. I'm the MP for Winchester in Hampshire. I'm the chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampart. Now, I'm a GP, a frontline GP in the Midlands, um, chair of the National Academy of Social Prescribing. And until very recently, I was chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. But I just stepped down from that a few days ago and I've mm. been on holiday. Yeah, so it was a three week gap, Helen, since our last recording. So we've allowed ourselves a week. Um, <laughs> and it is, it is recess after all. Uh, where, where have you been? Oh, well, I took a week away in Cyprus. It was absolutely gorgeous, but crazy hot, as you can imagine. So I ran away just for a week. Um, but, you know, finally getting back into routine after that. So uh, was there on call in surgery yesterday. So that beat the holiday over to me very quickly. Yeah, I bet it did. Do you see all that wildfire stuff on the news down in roads and that? It's absolutely horrific. I mean, the weather was scaldingly hot out in Cyprus, but we didn't have any of the awful problems with wildfires. But I just kept thinking to myself about the adverse impacts of global warming, how we all need to be ticking. This is a massive wake up call because several colleagues in surgery yesterday were talking about holidays they've got booked to places like Rhodes or Corfu or whatever, or their family have. And people are now genuinely frightened of it's impacting on us in a very real, tangible way. Anyone who's been affected by severe flooding or the fires we had in the UK in the last last year um, has already faced this. But I think this is something really important for us in healthcare to be talking about in terms of prevention and what we talk about here on the podcast. I think we should be talking more about uh, global warming, Steve, and the uh, impact on health. Oh, 100%. When you're on holiday, on a summer holiday, are you, are you a good uh, lounger person? I didn't used to be. I used to be far too active, but I've got a lot better at lounging or splatting, as I call it, you know, splatted on a sun lounger. Just laying. And does your other half do the same? Yeah. I mean, you're compatible. We're compatible in that way. He tends to get impatient to do stuff more, more quickly than I do. It takes me about four days before I start to get restless. Whereas he's usually after about 48 hours, he's kind of ready to do more. But the hot weather made us very compatible this time because you just couldn't do anything. We went out for one walk at uh, quarter to 10 at night. Uh, and it was 29 centigrade and it was 89% humidity walking near the beach. Uh, that's that sticky. It won't surprise you to learn I am a nightmare on uh, summer holidays and sit still for about five minutes uh, before I'm bored. So basically like a 12 year old boy. Anyway, um, last time, uh, this is episode 11 of Prevention is the New Cure podcast. Last time on the pod, we were discussing the workforce plan, which seems ages ago, doesn't it? And it was the 75th birthday of the NHS. And we we're talking a bit about Glastonbury. Um, so thanks for your feedback on, on episode 10. Uh, please remember to like the podcast on whichever platform you, you listen to it on. Um, so there's been a lot going on, Helen, since we've been away. Um, one story caught my eye last week. We'll, we'll talk about um, the paid deal in just a minute but did you see that story about the transparent mouse could improve cancer drug tests did you see that i did it was it was such a striking picture wasn't it but what a fascinating story yeah so a new scanning method involving a see-through mouse could improve how cancer drugs are tested by picking up tumors previously too small to detect so um the Helmholtz Munich Research Centre worked out how to make a dead mouse transparent back in 2018, and they've now used chemicals to highlight specific tissues so they can be scanned 
in unprecedented detail. So the, the wealth of potential that Cancer Research UK talked about is pretty obvious when it comes to some of the less survivable, um, less easy to detect cancers. Yeah, I mean, the implications are that our scanning will be more effective if these techniques are used. But remember, this can only be done on dead tissue at the moment. You can't you can't make a human invisible to scan them better. So this is all about research tool, not about use in humans. Um, but I'm sure the, the application, like all great new technologies, the applications will be realized in the coming years. Uh, but it is quite it is exciting. It's nice to see something really interesting in this diagnostic space and really different. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you're interested in more about this story, it's that the journal is called Nature Biotechnology. <laughs> it's a sort of it's a sort of a publication that you might see at the end of Have I Got News for You. But anyway, Nature Biotechnology is the publication. You can read all about the the research, and I know people who listen to the pod like a little bit of detail on these things, so you can see that. Now we've had quite a lot of industrial action, uh, which doesn't really help with much healthcare related prevention or otherwise but a lot of we have five day junior doctor strikes as we last spoke two day um consultant strike when they were providing what they call emergency christmas day cover and as we record this week's podcast we've got the radiographers for the first time on a two day strike so not going away is it no it's not steve and i think there's a lot of sort of confusion out there as to what does this all mean because in terms of you know, there's been big pay awards announced in the last few weeks. I mean, there was the big one in May, which was for all agenda for change stuff. Um, and then subsequently, we've had the pay award for people on the review body. So that's the doctors and dentists uh, review board um, have and the, the governments have accepted the recommendations and said, you're having it and there's no more negotiation. There's no take it or leave it. It's take it. And that's quite a bold thing to have happened from government. Um, and what's interesting is it doesn't seem to have had any impact at all on the on the passage of the strikes. And I really wondered if this would now send everybody back to have conversations and negotiation. But it really doesn't seem to have happened. And that's um, that's obviously very frustrating for patients who are uh, waiting for treatment and getting procedures cancelled. Uh, but it's also confusing uh, for you know the rest of us in healthcare wondering what's happening next. You know, I'm a frontline GP. GPs haven't yet um, balloted on strike action, but I'm sure that's going to come at some point. So that's just deeply difficult times for all of us. Yeah, so the, so the detail for those that, that like that. So most dentists and doctors are going to get at least a 6% pay rise. So junior doctors will be increased by around 8 to 9 just up near a 9%. So pay will be uplifted between... 8% and just over 10% depending on where they are in their in their training process there's also a an 1800 pounds payment uplift so i'm i i was on the record at the time i did quite a lot of media when this came out and said i think i think this is fair and i think it's fair to to those that are working and i think it's fair to the economy and to the rest of public services which obviously government I understand that the health unions obviously have to look at their members and that's their job. Obviously, government has a much wider responsibility across the, the whole economy and has to do what's fair to taxpayers and with respect to inflation. So I do think it's fair. And I said that on the media. And, you know, obviously, I've had flack for that and I've had praise for that. But I do think it's now's the time to draw the line. And, and the teaching unions, I don't know whether you saw this, but the teaching unions obviously suspended their 
planned strikes as a result of this. And I know that the initial response from the BMA was, well, that's great. Thanks very much. This is a good starting point. Um, and on, on we go. I, I can tell you now from talking to Treasury, talking to my contacts at number 10 and in the department, this is not a starting point. They're, 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 they're done with the negotiation. This is now, this will now be imposed as was the agenda for change. So I, I personally, I think that this is the beginning of the end, if not the end of this round of strikes. But key, and I said this in the House of Commons the other day, is that we have to get back to a situation where the government give the remit to the NHS pay bodies in the autumn. The work is then done over the turn of the year. It reports in January so that the Chancellor of the day can make the announcement on the pay award for the year to come in the budget, in the spring budget. We've got away from that. Um, long way from that, that. Well, a long yeah. way from that. And that yeah. has led to a kind of pay drag, I think, which has meant that people do, do not have any concept or any, any hope, and let alone the employers have got any way of planning what their pay bill is going to be. So I think it is fair, Helen. And I hear, obviously, I get it. It's not 35% that the junior doctors want. I, I get it. It's not. It's so, so look, this, this point, can I just pick up on this latter point? So rather, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pick up on the fairness or otherwise the rest of it. I mean, you know, you, you've, you've articulated very clearly in terms that is held by a lot of people, Steve. I mean, there's a lot of doctors and other healthcare pro professionals out there who won't be agreeing in terms of the quantum. But I think this point about the pay award bodies, all the pay award bodies, not just the doctors ones, obviously, I'm talking about the whole range of them, you referenced the teachers there as well. Absolutely, this has to be got back into a better timing cycle because it's crazy at the moment. Nobody's got a certainty on budgets. And of course, the situation we're in now is that the NHS has budgeted for a work for a three and a half percent pay rise. It's having to find a six percent pay rise for huge swathes of, of, of employees. I mean, actually, I think dentists are five percent. I think with trainees, you're right. It's a consolidated extra payment that tops them up above the six percent. Um, but where the heck's that money coming from? I mean, presumably ICBs and, and NHS England are scrabbling around frantically at the moment to find that extra 2.5% because it's not coming from Treasury. So it's well, going to come from other services, isn't it? And that's, kind of, the, that's a problem. A big part problem. of the pay rise is coming from, from reapportioning budgets. Part of it, they say, is coming from efficiencies. I mean, I've heard that before. Of course, you can't yeah. do them every single year. But they were but already big, factored in. A big part of it is coming from a rise in the international health surcharge. Uh, which hasn't gone up for a few years. So, I mean, again, I I guess the question that we on the select committee will be asking is, how do you repeat that? Because you can't repeat that can't. one every year either. No, it's a one-off. And, yeah. and uh, that's right. And you know, then this lack of certainty is is troublesome. I mean, obviously, from the general practice community point of view, there's been all this stuff has been said, but there's nothing, there's no certainty about what money is going to go to general practice, how, when it's going to be received. And so there's general practitioners up and down the country who are not on agenda, don't have staff on agenda for change, but they, they all their staff have heard in the news, oh, you're going to get a pay rise. And they're working out how on earth we're going to fund this if the money is not coming through. And I think there's a lot, that uncertainty stokes further anxiety and it increases the chances of other parts of the sector getting dismayed. And I think this is troublesome. So, yeah, you've hit something really important here. Bringing the planning cycle back into a sensible fiscal cycle would be a really good start. And um, I hope people listening can help make that happen. Okay, should we take a quick break? And then we'll come back and talk about measles. Yay. Welcome back. Helen, measles. You've got yeah. a bit of an outbreak where you are, but also big warnings in London recently. Yeah, so I think most people will have picked up an awful lot of 
noise about measles in the last few weeks. Um, London, big announcements last week from the UK Health Security Agency that they are predicting a very major outbreak because the level of immunity against measles is relatively low. And measles is one of the most infectious, easily transmittable infections that we have. Um, and one of those diseases that whilst a lot of people have a relatively mild dose of it, it can be fatal for some and have lots of long-term complications for others. Um, and then following those announcements last week, just on Tuesday this week, as we're recording, we're hearing there's an outbreak in a school in Stoke-on-Trent, where so far seven children have been confirmed with measles. But if seven children have been confirmed with it, they're estimating there's quite a significant community circulation of disease already. Areas which have got high vaccination rates, so that's people that over 95% of the population vaccinated, it should die out very quickly. But in areas with lower vaccination rates, you're going to get these outbreaks and that's going to lead to problems. So urging everybody, you know, there's a free evergreen offer from the NHS, get vaccinated with MMR. This doesn't just apply to children and young people, but people who've never been exposed to these things. So People who were born in the 70s and 80s are eligible for MMR vaccination because they wouldn't have been vaccinated as children and they were less likely to be exposed to infections. So I don't know about you, Steve, but I was born in the 70s. Uh, we've had this conversation before. Um, I wouldn't have had MMR, but I didn't have measles as a child. I remember having chicken pox and I remember having German measles as a child, but I certainly did or didn't get measles. And so I took up the offer of an MMR vaccine several years ago when the offer was made because I'm conscious, you know, I work with a public. Did I did. Yeah. Late. I did. Yeah, well, no, I, I think yeah. I I had it. Yeah, I think I had it when when I was meant to have it. But can I ask you what is the the connection? Because a lot of there's a big TV campaign at the moment about mm. shingles, ah, and, and shingles yeah. and measles they're, they're viral infections, right? That that, they are can, viral. that can be fatal. But yeah. shingles is more connected to chickenpox in correct. So pe they are pediatric years, right? Yeah, so that's correct. So chickenpox is a different virus from measles. So it's a totally different illness. Um, but but chickenpox invariably strikes in childhood. You get massive outbreaks of it. And isn't quite as infectious, isn't quite as dangerous as measles, but still pretty miserable when you get it. The key thing with chickenpox is once you've had chickenpox, a certain amount of, uh, I feel like, viral memory, for want of a more scientific description, remains in your system and at a later point can be reactivated in just single nerve pathways called dermatomes or stripes of nerves. And that can be reactivated to form shingles. So you can only get shingles if at some point you had a chicken pox in the past. Uh, I see. Which the vast majority of people have. Um, having a shingles vaccine can help protect older people, particularly from serious or severe bouts of shingles, because shingles for the first time can be... A, viciously painful, very distressing condition. And depending on what the nerve that's affected is, if it's across your face, affecting your eye, um, or it's affecting the genital area, it can be really troublesome and lead to lots of complications. So um, Shingles vaccination program is actually about to expand. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that. It's only been announced in the last few days. Um, formerly, people between the ages of 70 and 79 were being offered vaccination. It's going to drop the age to 65 upwards, I think. 
and it's going to now become a two-stage vaccine, a different vaccine, but a more effective one. And people will be offered two vaccines rather than just the one. So, yeah, that's another one. And all these I mean, it's all it, nasty. It's all good. I mean, vaccination, of course, other than somebody told me, other than clean water is the biggest public health intervention, prevention, yeah. preventative intervention we the can make. Ultimate prevention. The the select committee this week actually just publishing a report on our vaccination work stream within the prevention inquiry that, that we're doing. And the headlines are that the UK risks losing its position as, as the global leader on vaccination. And, and, the, and, and, the, yeah, and the reason for that is poor uptake yeah. and pretty low levels of industrial clinical trial activity in the UK are the reason for the warning. So, you know, we, England, we can fix both those. Yeah. So I mean, obviously we looked specifically at England as the, the house of commons mm. select committee. So England didn't meet the 95% target for routine child immunization any of them in 21 22 we're the only nation in the uk where coverage for all child vaccinations at all ages was below the target and yeah. coverage rates were consistently below the uk average so that's why you saw the warning from the uk health security agency you mentioned yeah. about london yeah. mmr rates re remain low that's why you've seen the measles spike in in london and in the west midlands yeah. and um you know we so we're making quite a lot of recommendations to government around access around the the vaccination workforce and uh, and for the government to when it's just england and the government to publish this vaccination immunization strategy which they've been talking about we need to see that so definitely um, do. You know, ha have a look out for that um if you're interested in that on the select committee website and social media and Steve, there are some really important things about making it as easy as possible for people to find trustworthy information at their fingertips, whichever way they want to find it, and making access to vaccination at times and places that suit them as easy as possible. Because so much of that, the, the problem we have with vaccination isn't people who are anti-vaccination. That's actually a very small population. It's this sort of antipathy, not, you know, a bit sort of meh about the whole thing. And actually, we need, if we make it as easy as possible, we're as positive as possible, we're more likely to increase uptake. So, well, I think I've said before that, you know, it, 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 there's very different, isn't it, between being anti-vax and being cut out of various parts of healthcare. So yeah. if you have yeah. poor dental health or poor sexual health it wouldn't be greatly surprising that you would have poor vaccine health as well because you yeah. you're outside aren't you you're, yeah. you're a bit you're, you're part it's part of the inequalities in healthcare yeah. um, on, on that um just just before we introduce our, our guests plural um yeah. big, big story this week that's running across all the media is a piece of work that's been put out by the health foundation the number of people living with major illnesses in england will rise nine times faster than the healthy working age population by 2040 nearly one in five will have health conditions such as dementia and cancer up from one in six in 2019 and the health foundation's work is saying that this this population shift will have a major impact on the nhs and that points to the need to the major condition strategy and the need to prevent uh these major conditions uh diabetes anxiety cancer atrial fibrillation atrial fib relation well heart failure um cpd you know it, my goodness is this music to our ears in some ways isn't it yeah absolutely i mean it's another fantastic publication by the health foundation who are one of the big think tanks who always turn out incredible quality work and um, i think what's interesting for me steve is you know this is not just a uk or an england phenomena this is a this is a phenomena that's recognized across all the sort of you know more affluent nations um 
be an aging population if you're aging and you've got a reasonably good healthcare system people as they're going to get older going to live longer to develop more long-term conditions but as we've talked many times before there are so many things we can do about helping people live the healthiest lives they can so so that we delay the onset of disease you know we prevent where we can and when we treat we treat in ways as early as we can so we minimize the you know all the damage that can be done by these long-term conditions um, however we also need to be planning for this for the future so you mentioned the long-term condition strategy we're eagerly awaiting that hopefully by the next episode we'll be talking about the interim report from them um and the full report for that's due out in the winter but i think this is something we all need to be deeply concerned about this isn't actually a shock this is what's been predicted for the last 10 years or so demographic time bomb in healthcare uh, but good to see it laid out so clearly yet again yeah it says um 80 percent uh, 2 million people of the projected increase in major illnesses will affect people aged 70 and over yeah. as the baby boomers reach old age and life expectancy increases. So, mm-hmm. you know, you just consider, look around your doctor's waiting room yeah. and then, and then consider <laughs> this, yeah. uh, you, you can see the pressure it's going to put on, on the NHS, which probably leads very nicely into our guests. So let's take a break. And when we come back, uh, we'll introduce them. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited to be introducing our next two guests. So unusually, Steve, we've got two guests today, and I'm going to give you a double dose of Davids. Uh, First of all, it's Professor Sir David Haslam, uh, who is one of my GP all-time heroes, um, one of the people who helped me by giving me great advice at useful points in time uh, to make some good career choices. Um, And the second David, uh, Professor David Pendleton, um, who I first got to know because of his legendary work about GP consulting, the Pendleton rules, but who I've come to know as a friend over the years. I'm going to let the pair of you introduce yourselves properly, chaps, but I just want you to know it's great to have you here um, and uh, lovely to be working with you again. David Haslam first. Well, I mean, uh, you know, who can argue with an introduction like that? Thanks ever so much, Helen. Real pleasure to be with you both uh, today. A real honour. I'm David Haslam, a lifetime as a general practitioner, uh, 36 years in Cambridgeshire as a GP, ending up in a a lot of leadership roles in the health service, um, primarily at the the end of my career, sort of six years as chair of NICE, which was an absolutely fascinating insight into some of the big questions around healthcare. And David P. I'm David Pendleton. I'm a psychologist by background. Um, did a lot of work with uh, general practitioners uh, around the time of my doctorate and for the few years afterwards. Uh, been a great fan of general practice and of the Royal College of GPs uh, for many, many years. Uh, and now I'm professor in leadership at Henley Business School, and thereby hangs a tale which we'll tell you no doubt as the conversation progresses. Brilliant. Thought, That's so great to have you both on. Thank you for coming. And David H, I believe you um, you must be retired because you said you listened to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't automatically follow. I certainly do listen to the podcast as, as, as I walk my, my children's dogs. We seem to spend an inordinate amount of time looking after my son and daughter's dogs, which is fabulous and love podcasts then. And of course, um, I'd be really interested to know how your dog Almonte is, um, because he's such a star of this podcast. Yeah, well, I so I'm in London today recording, and I my son, uh, we had that joyous moment at six a.m. this morning when uh, my son, who's twelve, came down and said, "I feel sick," and then I'm going to be sick, and uh, so he's at home sick. So I phoned home earlier. David to check how the boys so William my son and Monty the dog are and to which my wife said William's been sick three times and Monty's eating ants 
<laughs> so I, I that's the best update i can give you on monty today but you know the mind boggles the boy's sick and the other one's eating ants <laughs> what a pleasure adds well, a whole a whole new meaning to ants in your pants but but, but you know that's actually i think worse than apples under the desk so you know apples under the desk yeah, were a, trip, yeah. a trip hazard but that was about all anyway we should be talking about other stuff you have been up to some amazing work and david you're book has come out recently which has created quite a stir well yes yeah, so I, I, my book which uh, the title side effects how our healthcare lost its way and how we fix it um I, I was delighted came out to really fantastic reviews i was absolutely delighted with its reception when it came out last year coming out uh, august the 3rd in paperback i'm not going to miss the opportunity Ooh, to he's got um, his plug in and, and fundamentally, I was I was trying to have a look at the whole question of where what healthcare is trying to do, because it seems to me there's this extraordinary disconnect between what some of the stated aspirations are for healthcare, and uh, and actually what happens. You know, we we, for instance, the really simple one: we claim we want to reduce health inequalities, we want to improve health outcomes. The best way of doing that is focusing in primary care. Well, instead, we pretended over the last 10 years or so to let primary care sort of wither on the vine, whilst huge amounts of money have gone into other sectors. And I've been intrigued by that disconnect and wanted to explore that a bit. David P., did you want to, I mean, you've been doing a lot of thinking in this space as well. Well, yes, the, the Henley Centre for Leadership uh, I nudged into um, allowing David Haslam and I to co-chair a think tank uh, on the future of the health service prompted initially by the publication of David's book and uh, a conversation that he and I had had many many years ago we just thought we'd pick it up and so we invited uh, 12 extremely impressive people to come and join us and we debated the future of the health service for about two days and came to some I think quite interesting conclusions ones that uh, I think uh, are worth hearing, worth debating, and and worth defending, which I'm prepared to to, to spend some time with you on today, if, if there's time. Go for it. Well, I think the the the, the key word in, in all of our thinking became the notion of resetting. That what had happened is over 75 years, the health service started out in a particular direction to try and enable the health of the nation, but became a sickness service and really became a, a sickness service focused in hospitals, which are an expensive part of a whole kind of healthcare provision for a nation, um, and a, a bit left the funding behind in both social and primary and community care. Uh, and we believe that this system has become out of balance uh, and that what's needed at the 75th anniversary is a reboot, is a reset. Uh, and by that, we mean we need a short period of intense funding. Yes, extra new funding. That will be as popular as, as, as anything, of course, <laughs> in, in times of austerity. But we need about five years to reset this system, we think, um, and allow it to become a proper health service that's primarily uh, disproportionately funded around primary care. Steve, what do you think? Fascinating. I, 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 and I, I love your... I love the title of your book. There's one of the um, reviews says, let's guess, let's guess whose review this is. This insightful, extensively referenced work has taken the hugely complex challenges of the provision of universal state funded healthcare in a sustainable way and unpicked them thoughtfully. I was absorbed from the outset brackets on my sun lounger in Cyprus. Do, who, who, do you know who that was? Do you know who said that? <laughs> Steve, stop well, being I... naughty. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, it's Helen. So I think one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because so healthcare expenditure, what, what did the, the ONS say? It's about it's about 11, just over 11% of gross domestic product last year. And that's lower than it was about a percentage point lower than it was the year before. And that reduction is caused because the growth in expenditure on healthcare is being outpaced by the growth in the overall economy. In other words, we're increasing spending on health faster than our economy is growing. And when I ran for the chair of the select committee and we started the podcast shortly after that, we, I was saying, you know, we can't have a sustainable, it's not a sustainable situation where we are growing healthcare funding faster than the economy is growing. And therefore either we stem the, the rising tide of demand, which is outstripping supply or or something very, very bad is going to happen. The system's going to fall over. And so I guess the question is, are you talking structural or are you talking financial or are you talking both? As Alan Milburn used to say, investment and reform. Yeah, I think it is investment and, and reform, inevitably. Um, I, I, we, we very much sort of developed the analogy that you can almost see see the health system as imagine a, a bookshelf full of really good books like mine um <laughs> and which is where they the the you know so you've got a, a uh, the and the acute hospitals tend to be the books and if you haven't got an effective set of bookends the whole lot tumbles over and we thought the bookends are primary care at one end where there's this extraordinary capacity for handling risk uncertainty not avoiding over medicalization avoiding over treatment and then at the other the other bookend to, set, to stop the whole system falling over is social care, which again has been totally underinvested in. And the reason we got the concept of the of the reset, it's it's almost turn it off and turn it on again, which obviously <laughs> you, you can't do. But the, is the 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 fact that the acute care is where the noise always is, and where the noise is politically attracts the money. I mean, at the moment, obviously, there's noise in general practice because people are, are very unhappy about access to general practice. But it's always the the more expensive, the more glamorous situations where the money gets taken to totally understandably, which then underinvests in those two book two bookends and the books fall over. The system falls over, which is very much where we are at the moment. But here's the here's the weird thing, right? So as a, as a constituency MP, so I, you know, I have what 75,000 constituents. I, I get it. And you say in one of the pieces I, I, I read of your work is that obviously the the media MPs in particular are always excited by the bricks and mortars of their hospitals. But where the action is politically and the media action right now is around access to general practice. So it's not as if that's the Cinderella service that gets like sexual health services that's being overlooked. There has never been more talk about access to general practice. But are you saying that that's just talk then because the funding is not following the talk? Well, I'm, I'm looking back. I mean, you know, Steve, as well as I do, what the, the workforce numbers have been over the last sort of 10, 15 years, where we've seen the number of hospital specialists escalate really quite dramatically um, and the number of GPs plummeting. So the talk's been there, but but actually whatever the action that is required to, to address this just doesn't seem to have happened. The, the other problem with prevention, of course, which is, I think, a fundamental part of both your podcast and the role of, of general practice, is there's no story. You know, yeah. if you don't, if, if the, the, the tragedy is what, if you have a heart attack treated effectively, there's a wonderful story. There's a really good news thing. 
I bet you and I would infinitely rather not have a heart attack than have it treated effectively. But there's no story. There's no name. Even the person who doesn't have the heart attack doesn't know they haven't had a heart attack. There's nothing there as a as a narrative. Um, and so we've 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 pretended whatever the rhetoric has been about primary care, the actions have been in the other direction, as we can see from what's happened with the workforce. And obviously, we talked about the workforce plan in our last episode. I'm going to bring yes. David Pendleton back in before I perhaps throw a few questions at you. But David P, what yes. are you thinking right now? I'm thinking uh, that I was looking at the uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies uh, report. In a nutshell, what it shows is that in hospitals, you've got more healthcare workers treating fewer patients. And in general practice, you've got fewer healthcare workers treating more patients. And that's a uh, uh, a real problem to, to, to be sustainable. But the other thing I, I was thinking is that whatever the costs of any kind of reset and reboot that, that we're proposing, and we know that there will be considerable, there are two factors, I think, that are worth taking into account. The first is that between 2010 and 2020, the estimate is that our nation spent something like 40 billion a year less than the equivalent spending would have been in the other wealthy nations around Europe. Uh, and we think that it's it's time for a reset, a reboot. Let's imagine we could get half of that back. We just want to get half of it back to reset the system and make it fit for the future rather than fit for the past. We don't want to have a, a fine future behind us. Uh, and the second, the second thing I was thinking is that think about the costs in other terms too. What we've got at the moment is enormous costs being paid, firstly by folks working in the health service who are working their socks off and getting criticized all the time and the second is by seven and a half million people waiting for treatment you know those are costs as well this system is not working something yeah. needs to change but, and there's also other costs which that the whole impact on the on the economy of huge numbers of people not working at the moment because of long-term conditions and so on so we always tend to talk about the cost of the health service as as money out and it's, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys this, it's its the, the amazing impact it has on UK PLC from a production and uh, uh, from a workforforce perspective as well. It's, you know, yes. positive asset as well as the negative cost. And Lack of money in. <laughs> yeah. So certainly, yes, I was on call in surgery on Monday this week and uh, I had a pretty, you know, pummeling day as one always does. Um, but I was struck by the challenges of people on waiting lists and their economic activity during that process. I signed somebody off uh, and I signed them off for, you know, in the first instance for four weeks. And I think you know, you're going to be off for three or four months before the system manages to sort out all the new health problems we've just uncovered in you in the last couple of days. And it was a it was one of those moments of, oh, my gosh, this is a high performing individual. and I'm just taking them away from their work, which is the right thing to do. And the relief on the face was enormous when I said it and signed off the, the, the fit note. But it was a yeah. And if we could get them back to work faster, the whole system would benefit. Anyway, Steve, I'm conscious we've been going on for a while. What is it, what's on your mind? What are your reflections? You know, big sums well, of money are scary together. I mean, I think I was talking to the Chancellor earlier today about various things. I mean, he is acutely, if you listen to what he said in the budget, he is acutely aware of the financial cost of ill health. And, you know, I'm always talking to him, as you would expect me to, about the cost of not preventing ill health. But if we talk Turkey on the figures, right? So 25 years ago, just just after Blair came into office, the Department of Health in England spent about 36 and a half billion quid. So it's about about 60 billion pounds in today's prices. Today, the department's planned spending, excluding the COVID specials, 
is around 165 billion pounds. So that's a real terms increase of 180%. And they're, they're pretty accurate figures. So I guess the question that I always have as a parliamentarian, as a constituency MP, whose constituents are taxed to pay for this because government doesn't have any money, it only ever comes from the taxpayer, is how much more is enough? And, and where do we get it from? Because you remember Boris Johnson, to his credit, not often I say those words, um, he put in a 1% national insurance rise to pay for a COVID catch-up and then be the social care policy. And there was a huge hula baloo. And then uh, Liz Truss uh, got rid of it. And there was big support across the governing party and actually out in the country to get rid of that tax rise. So is this just another case the public want sort of um, European levels of spending, but they don't want to pay for it? I mean, my challenge back is the is about the alternatives. And I think what the two Davids are articulating is that if we don't do something radical, if we don't take this moment in time to do things big and differently, then we ain't going to have a health system that we can recognise in five to ten years' time. And I think that's what resonated with me when I read the work that the pair of you have come up with. Can I also say, Steve, um, the, the answer to your question, what's enough? It, it's an interesting one because it, it sounds increasingly like a kind of very specific question that there should be an answer to. And I don't think there is. I think it's a rhetorical question. Uh, the, the truth is we don't know what enough is, but what we do know is what insufficient is. And that's where we are at the moment. And part of the reason I, I wrote my book is I've been lucky enough to sort of visit um, a large number of countries around the world, particularly when I was chair of NICE and talked to health ministers in all sorts of countries and hear them facing exactly the same problems, yes. whatever their healthcare system is you know all these debates about let's dump the nhs and have social insurance or whatever well you know it's the same problem everywhere and i felt some of these issues come down to a lack of clarity of what we're really trying to achieve i think the reports in today's media of uh, about you know the extraordinary numbers of, of patients with multiple citizens with multiple health problems in years in years to come uh, this becomes an ever more challenging issue and the, the point at which we're over medicalizing uh, and, all, and a lot of aspects of everyday life uh, seems to me to be a universal, an international issue, not just an issue for the NHS, which is why I was really keen mm. to get this discussed. It's so interesting that you talk about the international perspective, because, you know, I've, I travelled a bit as a health minister and, you know, G7, G20 meetings with my NHS badge on. And how, it's so fascinating how many of my opposite numbers from around the world would talk to me in glowing terms about the NHS, which I didn't necessarily hear domestically from some sections of political life. But they were all they were always envious of our primary care system. They were always envious of that GP system. And, you know, I, I, I always think we need to, we need to, to talk that down at our peril because it really is the golden goose. But what you're, what I get, what I get, the sense I get from your work is that you think it's the, it's the golden goose that's not being fed properly. Well, I do. And I also have this absolute terror that it's going the same way as uh, dentistry and it'll be a, uh, it, it becomes a, um, a, a poor service for poor people while everyone else goes uh, goes private. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That so, be it's, so before we close, if each of you were to give us, you know, your two golden bullets in terms of, you know, preventing ill health, what, where would you look? Is it, a, is it population level? Is it secondary prevention? What, what is... What are the two golden threads that you think we should look at when it comes to preventing 
Well, th there is, without a doubt, there's, there's an issue of individual responsibility, and it's quite quite tricky to get into this whilst understanding the whole social determinants of health issue. But the, the Wanless report all those years ago talked about the need for a fully joined up, you know, situ scenario where the public is involved in in their healthcare, and we just haven't got there, and that's going to be critical. But we also have to support people for whom that is a major challenge. David P. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, professor of leadership, and I want to make a point about leadership at this point to close right. because my my sense is, you know, that, that my definition of leadership is is it, the job of the leader is to create the conditions for people to succeed, and at the moment we're not creating the right conditions for primary care to succeed. We're not investing enough in it. We're not giving it prominence enough, and we're not not enabling them GPs to enable health and well-being in the population as a whole. That's a really critical and dumb mistake, and we're making it right now as a nation. Thank you. Beautifully said, the pair of you. Steve, I think uh, we're out of time. Uh, absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much to, to the Davids, the Double D. Um, I was going to tell a story about when David Davis <laughs> stood against David Cameron, and we had T-shirts with Double D on, but it went horribly wrong. So let's leave it there. Um, David Hasman's book, uh, which you can find on an, all, all good sellers, is called Side Effects, How Our Healthcare Lost Its Way and How We Fix It. Um, looks like a really interesting book, uh, so you can find that. And David Penn, uh, you can find some of your writings, I think, through the Henley Business School, which so if you Google Professor David Pendleton, you will, will find that. Uh, we're really grateful, aren't we, Helen? Really, we really are. grateful it, to have it, your, your guys on. Such a privilege to have the conversation with you both and to hear you articulate what we've seen in writing. So thank you for your time. And uh, we look forward to continuing the conversations. And I really hope this has stimulated some thought in other people, because quite frankly, if we don't grab this moment, we will all be living to regret it. Indeed. And we've had a bit of, a, bit of an AGM of the podcast today because obviously uh, we, we've now into double digit in terms of this is episode 11, 11. I think. And uh, we, we've got so many people who want to come on the podcast. We've got some really interesting guests lined up in the weeks ahead. You can uh, email us uh, podcast at stevebryan.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and threads. The new the thing soon to be he threads. says, soon to be threads, him sounding terribly, uh, terribly with it. Um, but you can find us on all those platforms. Please engage. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Pose questions for the pod surgery because that doorbell will be back. And uh, until next time, thank you to the Davids. Um, pleasure to see you, Helen. Welcome back from your holiday. Thank um, you. And we'll speak soon. Yeah. Take care all. Stay safe. Bye. Bye. Bye.